Our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 886. John chapter 1, verses 8 and 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Ryan. It's good to be with you. Hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. My family was in Memphis visiting Ada's parents for Thanksgiving this past week. And on Thursday of Thanksgiving, Ada had signed us up for a four-miler turkey trot to benefit the March of Dimes. So um, thinking I would just pay the money and sleep in, that was not the case. We showed up to go. And one of the things that was fun about this was Mayan and Hardin signed up as, as well, but to do it as a relay. So they, that one of them would do the first leg, two miles, and then tag the other. Another one would do the other two miles. And mom and dad would run the whole thing, ideally with them. But that did not happen. Um, as we begin to start out, um, Ann Hardin's got the first leg, and she's there with Ada. And I'm, I'm on the back somewhere. I, I tend to like to run by myself and take my own time with this. And so... Uh, there's about 2,000 people, so it's crowded, and they go, or at least they let everybody go, and I, you know, I'm kind of in my own world, getting ready. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm rounding the first mile, and I noticed this cute little girl in the middle of the street just kind of walking, taking her time. And as I get closer, it's Ann Harden. And I come up next to her, I'm like, Ann Harden, are you okay? Oh, I'm fine. Yeah, that's great. You know, runners are coming by now, and uh, you're just passing, and she's just walking. I said, well, do you want, do you want to run, or what's, the, what's going on here? No, I'm okay. I'm fine. <laughs> I said, well, where'd, where'd mommy go? I said, well, she went on ahead. Um, and uh, I said, well, okay. Well, uh, I'm going to go on ahead. Is that okay with you? Oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. Well, just follow the crowd. May will be at mile marker two. All right, so I took off. I had my own personal goals that day to accomplish. <laughs> and <laughs> we... We all finished the race, and, you know, we're all excited and probably more excited to at least say to ourselves we did something before we give stuff our faces full turkey. Uh, but I, I turned to Aiden, and I said, you know, what happened there with, with you and Hardin? I mean, I, had, I, I thought I had, was going to need to walk with her and, um, you know, thought you were going to run with her for the first leg. And she was oh, yeah, I thought I was too. But when the guy said go, she took off <laughs> in a dead sprint. Um, and she said, I couldn't even catch up with her. And I just kind of had to let her go. And well, sure enough, it's all starting to kind of make sense to me, right? Because I wasn't with him at the starting block. But as I'm approaching Ann Harden and she's saying she's fine, she's not fine. She's out of breath. Like, she's done. She had, she had sprinted almost an entire mile and had nothing left in the tank, uh, as it were, to round the second to make the relay. Um, unfortunately, this upset her older sister, May, who was... Uh, sure that their relay team was going to win and take home the pecan pie as prize, but um, they did not get the right the time that they needed. Uh, like many of us before who have either done a race like this or you know, attempted to run period, 
we hear the words go, right? And like in heart, and sometimes we just, we sprint, we go. And we know that if, if we're going to make a four-miler, let alone, you know, anything of any type of endurance, we've got to pace ourselves. We've got to slow down and take it as it comes. We can't, we can't sprint. And, and this is where I want us to start for our season of Advent. Uh, I want us to think about uh, the four weeks of Advent as, a, as, it, wo- as it were, you know, or would be a, that of a four-miler turkey trot. Um, that most of us, we, we tend to want to sprint right to Christmas. And for various reasons. Let's get there. Let's do this. Let's open the presents, all the things. And what, what Scripture wants us to do, what the season wants us to do is to slow down. To set a pace for ourselves, to take our time, to process and deal with what this season is about. And that's one of the reasons Advent, Advent is four weeks for us. Advent, as, as we said earlier, means arrival. And, and it celebrates the coming of Jesus into this world. And, and with that, there is much to consider. There is much to consider. And for our series here at Fort Worth Prez, we are naming this Advent series, Why the World Needs Christmas. And... Um, Shocker, it's, it's not because the world needs economical development. Um, <laughs> there's something else the world needs. Uh, and, and we will be looking at John's prologue in chapter 1 over the next four weeks to help us understand why the world needs Christmas and to consider what the arrival of Jesus would mean for us, would mean for me, would mean for my family, this church, my friends, um, everyone. But to do so, we need to slow down. So for today, our first Sunday in Advent, I want us to see, which is the hope, the hope of, of the Savior in Jesus, the Logos. I want us to see, as Isaiah wrote, many years before Christ, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. A light has dawned. And this is our, this is our hope. Our, for our three points this morning, I want us to see what always has been, what is, and what always will be. From John's prologue, what always has been, what is, and what always will be. So let's look at that in those order, in that yeah, in that order. What always has been. The purpose of John's gospel, whether you've read it before or not or studied it, is that those reading it might believe, and that they might believe in Jesus Christ. And while the prologue, chapter one, there that we're going to be looking at is is all we'll be looking at for Advent. Um, it doesn't cut us off from this message. It doesn't cut us off, cut us off from John's point uh, that he wants us to deal with and be confronted with who Jesus is. No matter where we are in life, no matter what we believe, for at least two reasons as we start in these first two verses. One, Jesus has always existed. This is his first point. And two, um, all things were made through him and for him. And these are two subpoints here to go along with that first point. This is why we need to consider him and, 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 to, and to slow down and to, and to deal with Jesus first, because Jesus has always existed. Um, if we take those first two verses together, and again, there's so much in this prologue, if you've ever read it, it's beautiful. Uh, but we see that verse 2, just to kind of help wade through it, is really a summary of verse 1. That, that he, being Jesus, a second member of the Trinity, was in the beginning with God. John begins his gospel by, at the very least, sort of setting these parameters for who Jesus is or for who he is about to tell us about, who we should believe in. And more importantly, who we should believe in as the Savior, as the light of this world. While John is certainly hitting at 
some mythological and pagan or religious beliefs from his day about the origins of the world and good and evil. He is making the bold claim that this Jesus didn't just show up as a man, and that was his beginning. He is making the bold claim that Jesus has always existed with God. Later in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father and he is saying in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Many see John's prologue as really sort of an outline of everything he's going to tackle in his entire book. And it is that. But this is his first point. And as we even listen to the words of Jesus in that prayer to glorify him, uh, you know, as he, as he was with the Father before the world existed, when we listen to that, we need to stop for a second and recognize that, look, this is not just sort of sweet father-son conversation. This is not some vernacular that this culture would understand that we need to tap into. This is the craziest thing anybody has ever said. And, and even if they said it today, this would be crazy. Jesus is saying that I and the Father, the creator of all that is, that we are one. We are one. And I, like the Father, have always existed. It's at this point that Jesus has left the reservation. And you have to decide if you're going to leave the reservation or not as well. We can't take these types of claims and just sort of cut them out and set them aside. He is claiming to be deity here. He is saying that this is who I am. I am the word, the logos. I wasn't incarnate. I did not have flesh, as verse 14 will will share, will tell us that the word then became flesh and dwelt among us. But I was the word, the life-giving logos. Yes, certainly much to consider here. But this is what has always been true. This is John's point to begin with. That Jesus, who we celebrate on Christmas, is the incarnate member, second member of the Trinity. That he has always existed with the Father and Spirit. Second, what has always been true as well about Jesus before his incarnation is that all things were made through him and for him, as Paul would later uh, tell us in Colossians. To put it negatively, as, as John does here in verse 3, without him was not anything made that was made. See, for John, Jesus is not some option for, for us to put together, uh, to help us put together, you know, an idea of what this world is, is about or the purpose of, of, of my life here or some path that really works best for me. For John, Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Not only because, <clears throat> not, not only have I, has Jesus always been, but everything, and everything includes you and it includes me, has been made through me and for me. And what that means for us this morning, at the very least, is that we cannot begin to understand ourselves and understand who we are and why we are here and the purpose of this life without knowing Jesus, without dealing with him in some way, which is what the season puts in front of us. Whether you're an Apple fan or not, and I hesitate to even use this as an illustration this morning, whether you are an Apple fan or not, nobody would disagree that, 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 that you cannot understand Apple as a company without understanding Steve Jobs. It's impossible. Right? From resurrecting the company when it was in the tank to making it one of the most profitable companies uh, in existence to creating products that we and languages that we use on a daily basis for better or for worse. No one begins to understand Apple without first dealing with Steve Jobs. If you have created a business, if you created anything, maybe you're an artist, 
You can't understand those things, the DNA of those things, without understanding its creator. And the same is true for us. You cannot understand yourself, this world, what we are about, what we are doing here, without dealing with and understanding and knowing Jesus Christ. The one whom all things were made through and for. There's a lot to consider here. As we leave this first point, the best thing that I can do as a minister of the gospel in one sense is to get you to deal with him. Is to get you to confront and and engage Jesus. To see the world in and through him. To understand yourself because of Jesus. To see your life not as some random story that just started at birth and that will end at death. But a story that always was and always will be. Because why? Because of Jesus. Who always was and always will be as well. Who thought of and knew you before the foundations of the world, as Paul tells us in Ephesians. And while the season of Advent is no more spiritual, right, than any other day, Christmas has a way of pressing in and preparing us to perhaps deal with Jesus in a way that we never have before. This is really, to be cheesy about it, the magic of the season. Got a little bit of cheese this morning, right? The opposite, of course, is true too, right? The season can be so crowded with sentimentality and fluff that we can miss it completely. We can miss Jesus altogether. But for the next 25 days, the reality that Jesus came to this world to take on flesh, it will be front and center. What will we do with him? What will we do with this season? This is what has always been. Jesus, the Logos, has always existed according to Scripture. And all things are made through him and for him. And apart from him, nothing was made. And this uh, should, should be thought for us in understanding who we are, too, as individuals and why we're here. Let's leave that first point then and continue in John's prologue and look at what is the second point. What is, is Jesus is also the source of all life. And that life was the light of men, in verse 4, he says. In other words, like a parent and a child, we all have echoes of God in us as his creation. John's prologue, as you probably noticed, right, echoes that of Genesis 1 and its creation account with the words, in the beginning. It's kind of a giveaway, if we are at all familiar with Genesis 1, which begins with, in the beginning. And that's intentional. If you wanted to sort of kernelize the creation account, just look at verse 4. And what John is saying is that the word, the logos itself, has creating power. It is life itself. Logos is a very interesting term, by the way, to use to describe, John, to describe God for John. And it's worth noting this. John does it, though, for several reasons. One of those being for his readers who weren't necessarily familiar with Christianity, but also for those who were. But for those who weren't familiar with Christianity, for, for the Stoics of the day, for example, the word logos, as, as D.A. Carson puts it, was the rational principle by which everything exists, which is of the essence of the rational human soul. And far as far as they were concerned, Carson continues, there is no other God than Logos. All that exists comes from it. And John immediately wants to attach that understanding of the word, that Logos, with Jesus. 
Why? Because Jesus is the rational principle by which everything exists. All All that exists comes from him. It's pretty clever, isn't it? The purpose for John at this point, though, is not to jump to salvation, which, which, which familiar readers might want to do with the use of the word light, but to stay with its source, to stay with the power that it has because of where it comes from. Again, creation language here. In John chapter 5, later, verse 26, Jesus will say, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. What John is saying is that what the Father and Jesus is for all of creation, a mom and a dad are for a child in one sense. <clears throat> As Bruce Milne puts it, love's instinct, which is what the Trinity is, right? love's instinct is to create. So out of the unique communion of love between God and the Word, the universe sprang into existence. Again, for John, the point right here is, is the source of this life. That is the light of men. Parents are the source of life for their children in that sense. In this way, parents are the light of their children, their creator. This is what is for all creation. Which means, and this is my point for the second point, you have echoes of the creator in you. All of you do. As Bruner writes, there is no such thing as a godless person. He, Jesus, is too near every one of us. Now that is uh, just as my daughters will always have their parents' DNA in them. No matter how much they reject me, no matter how much they reject Ada for years to come, they will always be part of us. Again, that says nothing about salvation at this point. That's John's point. John is making the point, likewise, all of us have echoes of this light in us because all of creation comes from this source, this power, this word that is Jesus. You cannot take it out or remove it. It is. And what Christmas is, whether we believe in Jesus or not, to use this illustration in a very unique way, it is then our true parent who has come home who is drawn near to us. Our source of life, that is the light of all mankind, has come to be with his people. That is what we're celebrating here at Advent. That is the arrival component. That's John's point in this prologue. That's Christmas, where there is a sentimentality that can overrun the holiday calendar, but we can also confuse that sentimentality with what lights up inside of us when we begin to deal with Jesus because of what's true of all of his creation. I don't know what's true, if this is true for you or not, but growing up, definitely into middle school, I had a bit of a homesickness problem. Didn't like to be away from mom and dad. Um, this really kind of began to weigh on me when I had, uh, when we had kids and they went off for their first sort of week-long camp. I was so nervous and had so much anxiety about, are they going to make it? Because I didn't make it. I came home after day two. The heck with this when I was, you know, young going to camp. <clears throat> And so they go, and of course they are fine. They didn't, they, I'm sure that they didn't seem to think about or miss us at all, um, which then caused me other problems, but that's all right. <laughs> so, you know, they don't have the, uh, the homesick gene like I had. But, you know, when I was their age, I did. And I remember having this one memory. It's seared into my brain 
where my grandparents came down from Ohio to, to visit us in Tennessee and to, to be with us. And I have no idea where my parents went. They could have just gone out for dinner. It seemed like an eternity. Uh, my brother could not calm me down. I just, I just wanted to be with my parents. And, and for better or for worse, I just remember when, when the day was coming, the time was coming when they said that they were going to be home. There, just out of nowhere, my dad's face pops in this window. Like it wasn't the door, window of the door. It was just sort of a window. Like he was just sort of trying to, I don't know, scare us or peep in or whatever. And, and, and that, that picture is seared into my brain. Because as soon as I saw him, all was right with the world, right? I could move on. And, you know, this could be a cinema story, of course. Um, but it could be a real, it could be true in a real sense as well. That the world is not right because we are not right due to the separation that we have with our true parents. Now, there would be a problem with this if I was still having this reaction at 39 and my parents left. But you get the point. All of us have the creator, the Logos, Jesus in us. We are all image of God. And the world is not right because we are not right due to the separation from our creator that came when our first parents rebelled. In the garden. <clears throat> when sin entered this world. And now because of that our hearts rebel too. And this is the problem. This is the darkness. That will begin to unfold in John's prologue. That's why unfortunately. We only have echoes of the creator in us. And what Christmas celebrates though is that Jesus our true parent has come near again. He has come near in the flesh to end that separation by dying for that rebellion, by dying for that darkness inside, by dying for that darkness that creeps out into every aspect of his good creation that ultimately brings death. And it's that part of the season that is easily overlooked because we don't want to deal with the darkness. We want to numb to the darkness. And so we... We make it about other things. But this is, again, another reason why we need to slow down and consider what is happening here. When we begin to deal with Jesus, when we begin to deal with our true parent who has come near, if you will, what does that begin to look like for you this season? What does that begin to look like? What would it look like to not just understand yourself and the world in relationship with Jesus, but to consider that like your earthly parents, you are his creation. You have him. You have, you have traces of him in you. And that everything that truly is wrong with the world is made right by this Savior who comes to die for you. What would that look like? What would that mean for you? What would that mean for the people around you to consider that? This is what is, that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. This moves us lastly to what will always be. And what will always be, thankfully, as John moves along to verse 5, is that because of this Savior, and he's setting this up so brilliantly, because of the Savior that is the light of the world, darkness will never overcome it. This is verse 5. Literally, darkness will not take it or, 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 or lay hold of it, is what that word means. D.A. Carson, though, says this, and he says it best when he begins the exposition here at verse 5. He says, this verse is a masterpiece of planned <clears throat> ambiguity. Couldn't agree more. What does he mean by that? Why does he say that? 
Because it's here that we begin to wonder, is John still talking about creation? Or is he talking about something else? And what's genius about John's prologue, among so many things, is that any Hellenistic Jew or pagan Greek reading this prologue, having no idea what Christianity is or was, would have no reason to take this verse any other way but referring to creation the way it started. It would, be, it would read like this. Yes, before light came into the world, darkness was all that there was. Darkness is the absence of light. But as long as there is light, darkness cannot win out. And it's at that point you want to say exactly. You got it. As long as there is light, darkness cannot win out. For the Christian and anyone who has read John's gospel, they know the words light and darkness mean something more than just what happened at creation. For darkness here, for John, it will refer to what is evil. See, Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3 will say this in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, what will always be true then is the light has come and the darkness will never overcome it. In other words, Jesus has come to us so that the darkness that we love might never win. And this is the hope of the season. But something else is just as true if you're picking up on it that we need to hear this morning. And I think we need to hear certainly front and center as it pertains to the season of Advent. That just as what will always be true is that the darkness will not overcome the light. What will always be is because what will always be is because of sin. What will always be is that we will love the darkness. We put it that way. What John is trying to say is that, yes, it is true that that light has come into the world, has come into this darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. But don't miss the point as well, is that our hearts love the darkness. And there's a sense here that what will always be as well, unless something comes from outside of us and enters in and shines light on that darkness, we too will always love the darkness as well. And we need Christmas, first and foremost, to be rescued from this darkness that isn't just out there, right? But it's in here as well. Darkness can be obvious to us. And here's just sort of a list of things that I just put together from the past couple weeks as it pertains to the way that we experience darkness. Uh, And it is a real real sense of the darkness that is a a product of the fallen nature of this world. Um, Just in the past couple weeks, we have a dear friend whose mom has died of cancer last Thanksgiving for sure. That's hard. Um, Ada was in Memphis, flew back from Memphis uh, last week. And she sits next to this woman who's her mom's age and beginning to just sort of have that normal chit-chat on the plane. Why are you, uh, you coming to see, you know, your family? Well, I'm coming to Dallas to get a plane to Oklahoma because I was in Mississippi. Um, and I got a call that my, my husband died. So here she is sort of in transit just to go and deal with that. Cried the whole way, whole way there. But this is, this is, this is the darkness that we see. 
that still pervades this world. Uh, Tuesday before Thanksgiving, a neighborhood email went out to us about a young family who lost their son who was just under a year old. Two days before Christmas. A minister, a friend of mine, walked away from his family in the church. That's, that's happening. Y'all have your list too. Y'all have your list too. Um, and it makes us ask if we you know, are honest about it. Is darkness winning out in this world? Is darkness winning out? And what John's prologue is saying, and I, I want you to see this more than anything really, about what will always be true is one, though, darkness is not winning out. Darkness is, 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 is not winning out, nor will it win. But two, your heart will always love the darkness unless something outside, unless this light comes in. See, the danger of only seeing darkness in this world in the way that I just described is that darkness is something that happens what out there. That we can grow so weary and so tired of the way that this world is falling apart before our eyes. The way that death is taking those that we love. And in that sense, all we see is the darkness that is out there. And not in here, in our own hearts, what Christmas has come to deal with in the first place. What Jesus is saying in John 3 is the darkness that you love is in you. And the darkness that you hate, that you see all around you, is in you as well. In fact, we are the darkness that Jesus has come to die for and redeem. That's the message of Christmas. It's not one that we like to talk about, is it? But we must. We shouldn't ignore it. This is what Christmas has been trying to tell us and is trying to tell us if we will let it. Your heart will always love the darkness unless something outside comes in and gives it new life. And that's why we need Christmas, because we need a Savior. We need a cross. The world needs a cross. And that's what God gives us. Jesus comes into this world to die so that darkness may be defeated forever. And this is why Christmas is the opposite of all that is sentimental. Because Christmas, friends, is real. It is real. It is real because it is ugly. And it is messy. We make it sentimental by putting porcelain baby Jesus as the centerpiece of our dining room table. Not saying anything about that whatsoever. But that's what we do. And what we really should be doing is putting an ambulance there in the center, right? This Jesus has come here not to be cute and cuddly, right? But to die a horrific death that we deserve so that John's words in verse 5 might ring true forever. That the darkness will never overcome or lay hold of or take away the light. That is the hope of this season. That is why we celebrate this this year, this Christmas. So what will it be? What will it be for us as we think about this, as we slow down to, to, to process what it is that is going on in front of us as we come to church and go throughout our lives? Will we be people that always love the darkness? Can we be honest about that? Can we be honest about the vulnerability that it takes to lay down that guard and sit under and submit to the one whom all things were created through and for? That is the big question. Which way will we go or will we, we receive the light in Jesus that darkness cannot overcome? 
The light that transforms and makes new life from what is dead. That gives new desires. That creates and doesn't destroy. The light that puts the world to rights. And it brings order to the chaos. Because Christmas is real, friends. What we celebrate is real. Both its light and its darkness. Some of you know that I have a little bit of a fascination with the the true crime genre. And a book that just came out um, called Chase Chase Darkness With Me by uh, a man named Billy Jensen uh, who wrote it. And Billy Jensen is kind of uh, one of the who's who of of true crime in our our culture. Um, He has solved many of murders, many of of missing uh, persons' cases that the FBI just can't handle. And he's not even a detective. Like he's not, he doesn't work for the police. And uh, the whole premise of the book, though, is to sort of tell his story, but to get you too involved in crime fighting so that you too can chase darkness with him is kind of the point. He has solved over 12 cold case murders. Um, he has aided in several others on top of uh, being a consultant on murder and for missing people's cases. Um, you can ask me later why this genre interests me. That's, let's, not, let's not get distracted by that right now. But people have sent him thousands of letters pleading with him to take their case to find or solve their loved one's crime, you know, their loved one's um, attacker. And in the book, when asked why Billy Jensen does this, he recalls this story of growing up in the 70s, and some of you all might be familiar with this, about coming home one day to his father's words, they got him. They got him. Of course, referring to the 44 caliber killer or the son of Sam, David Berkowitz in New York City, who terrorized the boroughs there, killing up to 12 people, um, or sorry, up for 12 months, killing six people, wounding seven others with his 44. He would uh, write letters uh, to the police, taunting them, saying just horrible things like, I am the monster, Belizebub, I love to hunt, prowling the streets, looking for fair game. Uh, he even records that there was such a panic in the streets at the time that, that girls were, were dying their hair blonde because his victims were always brunette. And what Billy remembers is that everyone was scared. Everyone was on edge. But on August 11th, 1977, they caught him. And that was the news his dad was sharing with him. They caught the 44 caliber killer. And Billy writes this about that. He says, what I remember most is the curious feeling of relief throughout my household, throughout my town, throughout my city. This wasn't the Muppets or superheroes. This was real. Some order was brought to the chaos. Things had been set right in the world. And I liked that feeling. Friends, whatever you think of this season, whatever, you, whatever Christmas is for you, he, hear this. This is real. This is real. Both the light and the darkness. Christmas is real, and I'm, I'm not talking about Santa Claus for the moment. The light shines in the darkness, and that light is Jesus, and the darkness will not overcome it. If we were to give the Bible another name, right, perhaps chase darkness with me would be appropriate. Because isn't that what Jesus does? Isn't that what the light is all about, right? Isn't that what the story is about? But most certainly what the cross proves. That the creator God who made all things has come to restore all things by chasing darkness, darkness to its end and letting it take him down. And the cross is ironically 
the ultimate of what is chaotic, that restores order. And he did it for you. And now we don't have to love darkness anymore. We can love something else. We can love God and be restored to him where all things are and will be made new. The irony of all that I read about guys like Billy Jensen and those who love true crime, it seems to be the case, is they're longing to see order from the chaos, yet not wanting to believe in God. Rarely do any of these people believe in God, though there's this desire in them to want to see order restored from the chaos. And in so doing, they miss it completely in their quest to bring order from the chaos. The world needs Christmas because the world needs a cross. The world needs a Savior to rescue us from the darkness that we love and put the world to rights. And he has come in Jesus. Friends, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Do not miss that. Would we slow down to notice and to deal with the reality that on those living in a land of deep darkness, a light has dawned? Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you For John's words, for what has always been true, what is, and what will always be true. And that is a light has come into this world and the darkness will not overcome it. And that light is your son Jesus who has come to die for us. That we may be people of the light and not people of the darkness. We consider that in new and fresh ways this year as we anticipate Christmas, as we anticipate the arrival of this good news, of this gift for us. Would you do this for us for your glory alone, we pray. Amen.